Super Jump Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Mitchell Farley Wolf, and I'm here with the founder and editor in chief of Super Jump Magazine, James Burns. Hey, James, how's it going? It's going great. I'm I'm excited to be back after a long hiatus. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm glad to to have the the. Uh, it's just us. It's just the original crew. Just the original Super Jump Podcast duo. Yes, and you know what what people. Uh, what listeners of the show uh, won't won't realize necessarily, unless we do some sort of big tell-all B-roll thing one day, is that quite often before the show, um, you, you know, you are not only the show's host, but you are sometimes my therapist. So <laughs> <laughs> just your side gig, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I put in the hours, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> That that's my hobby. I, I don't try. I try not to mix amateur my, psychology. Yeah, my fun life right. and my my work life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of getting things off your mind, because you've been off the show for so long, and because this is kind of a slow news week, we have a lot of news that has just happened that you haven't voiced your opinion on, and I definitely want to dig into that. That'll be the main body of today's episode, but before that, as always, we have our introductory segment, the Playtime Report. Uh, the Playtime Report is, of course, the segment of the show where we talk about what we've been playing lately, but before that, I want to ask you, James. Hey, James, I feel like when I created the name Playtime Report, in the back of my head, I thought, this is a pun on something, and now that I think about it, <laughs> I don't think it's a pun on anything, and I, I don't think I've ever thought about why it's called that other than it seems snappy, but, like, why? Is it is a, is a playtime report a thing? Uh, well, it is now. I mean, now it's... Sure, now, now it's, it's a thing. It's, yeah, like, it, it's firmly embedded in Super Jump podcast history and culture. Yeah, gaming um, culture at large, really. That's, uh, that's our reach. Yeah, it's part of the zeitgeist, so, um, you know... It, it it just is. <laughs> <laughs> but is is that is there like an ESPN thing? Is is it anything? <laughs> is it, I, it, I don't like, know. I, I know what you mean. It sort of it seems vaguely sporty. takes it seems, me somewhere. Yeah. Like it, yeah, like it kind of harks to something. I I don't quite know what, but it look, it feels good and I'm uh-huh. gonna go with it. Yeah, uh, newsy nibble is is uh, also nothing, but that's that's alliteration. So I I at least know where that's from. And hot topic is a great great store that uh, Americans love. But yeah, let's get into the playtime report. James, you've been playing three very topical um, games. Very very new. You're you're. If I looked at the list of games you you were showing me right now, and I didn't know you at all, I would say that's a guy that knows what the kids are up to. So what do you what have you been playing? Uh, well, uh, I'm I, I'm in this kind of bittersweet period where I'm bouncing between multiple games, which is which is sometimes good and sometimes bad, I guess. Um, so I'm playing I'm bouncing between three games at the moment. Um, the first one I'm playing is <clears throat> Sekiro. Great, uh, of course, the new highly discussed. <laughs> um lambasted etc miyazaki game from from software um i'm also playing alongside that so when i get when i get frustrated in in sekiro and i'm i'm stuck which happens quite frequently um 
I kind of bounced between Apex Legends and The Division 2. Um, and I guess I, I should probably start actually with Apex Legends because uh, in some ways it's my favorite of the three, but I also kind of have the least to say about it. <laughs> um, I, because, I think I understand that. Yeah, like it's it's one of these games that you it's great because you can jump in, you know, you can play five minutes, you can play a really, really quick around or a couple of rounds in between other stuff, put it down, not play it again for a week and just dive back in. You know, you don't have to worry about where you're at, what you were doing. Um, it's one of those kind of hobby or I hesitate to say lifestyle games, but you know, it's, it's kind of taken the place for me a little bit of Splatoon 2 that was always my go-to you know if I want to play something but I can't really be bothered you know getting invested in a big mission or, sure, or yeah. something like that um, I would jump to Splatoon 2 and now it's Apex Legends um, I guess the thing that's a bit unusual about it for me is that I've never been like I love first person shooters but I've never been a battle royale player and I guess in general, I've never been a like an online PvP player, mostly because I suck. Mm. Um, sure. You know, um, and I'll die in two seconds. As your therapist, I, I would advise <laughs> against self-destructive language like that, but sure. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> the funny thing is, though, of course, you know, the more you play it, the better you get. And now I'm average. Um, okay. Not not brilliant, but not totally sucking either. Um, and I guess, I mean, so much has been said about it, and we've had a lot of articles about it on the magazine as well. But I guess the bottom line, from my point of view, is, you know, they kind of uh, respawn have kind of nailed everything. Like <clears throat> the shooting mechanics are absolutely superb you know, buttery, buttery, smooth, accurate shooting mechanics. You know, the controls feel fantastic. The world design is excellent. It's, it's really, really clever. Um, and it's, you know, like in a battle Royale, you, you know, you're obviously every single match you're playing, you're coming back to the same map over and over again. So making that map sort of strategically interesting, visually varied uh i think is really important and in apex legends every match feels completely different you can play 10 matches in a row and every single experience is totally different from the last which is really awesome um yeah that that sounds really cool i i keep like hovering my finger over apex legends on on the xbox store and i keep thinking like maybe it's free mm -hmm. I could do it, and then I, I never do it because I feel like one of two things could happen. I, I could either just get really sad that I'm going to be bad at first. Um, you know, that's that's always a, a hurdle you have to get over. You just, like, got to be okay with being bad. And I don't know. I have a little trouble with that sometimes where it's like, if I, if I can't even really grok what I'm supposed to be doing... For a mm. couple matches, all I I just will bounce off. I I can't stick to it at yeah. all. 
but on, on an academic level, I love watching like people play Apex Legends and and uh, people talk about Apex Legends. It it really seems like a it seems like a more interesting development to the industry than Fortnite because Fortnite almost felt like you can't talk about Fortnite. You just have to talk about how everything's changed around Fortnite. Where people yeah. really, I yeah, I don't know. That doesn't actually. Now that I say that, that actually might be a nothing sentence. Hang on. <laughs> now that I say that, like poop. Um, I, <laughs> I need to. No, to but, <laughs> but I know what you mean. It's like the, it's almost like the phenomenon, kind of the the cultural phenomenon around it has you know rightly or wrongly kind of overtaken it, it kind of crowds out a lot of the real discussion about the actual yeah game that people are playing which is kind of unfortunate because i mean i never played fortnite um battle royale i was always the the person that played save the world and i did play it for a while i thought it was quite good like it, it's it's quite a it's a very well designed game um so when oh, everyone yeah, was talking about Battle Royale, I was sort of like, well, what about Save the World? It's really good. But, um, yeah, I mean, Apex Legends is brilliant. I definitely recommend giving it a go. Um, one of the things that makes being crappy at it a lot easier to stomach um, early on is that, let's say, for example, you start the game and you're just, like I kind of still am, um, much, much worse at shooting people and hitting people than other players. The nice thing is that there's a real variety in the characters and the abilities they have. Um, and so you can easily play a few matches where, um, your main role is to support the team and provide healing to the team. Um, because of the the much discussed ping system, you know, you can help the team by finding really good items and guns and kind of alerting the team to them. So there's a lot of things you can do kind of tactically that actually don't involve being a brilliant marksman. And I think that's one of the kind of secrets as to why Apex is so good. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's... That that sounds right. I mean, again, I'm I'm coming from a, a an experience without having played it, but you know that 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 same team dynamic that if you can nail it, I I think does wonders for your game because that that also seemed like a bit of a difference between something like Lawbreakers and Overwatch, mm. where Overwatch had all these roles you could play as, and, and uh, not only were they mechanically different and and uh purposefully for different kinds of players they also just had very different personalities and you can you can grab onto that and uh lawbreakers kind of struggled with that and of course now um man what what an example of a modern day financial failure i feel bad for lawbreakers like every other day there's like a ping in my brain that just says oh remember lawbreakers and then i get a little sad (laughs) Um, oh i always feel (laughs) <laughs> I I always feel heartbroken for any any game that runs into that fate. Um, especially, <laughs> like, I don't make games, but I, I work in software development. And what we do, what I do in my day job, I think is much easier than making a game. 
but it's still hard. <laughs> so I, you know, I sort of, um, I think about that and I, I, I always feel heartbroken when, when games don't work out and when they fail, because, you know, it's, it's usually never through lack of massive effort and, and massive work that's gone into it. Sure. Um, I, I totally agree. Uh, we definitely have to talk about... This is this is an issue, I guess. This is a mini hot topic within the Playtime Report. <laughs> I don't know how much I care about it, but some some people are really on the idea of a hard mode, or sorry, an easy mode in, in Sekiro. One does not exist, but mm -hmm. uh, this seems to be the game that, that broke the GameStop's back here in mm -hmm. terms of just presenting really high difficulty challenges and not really allowing any kind of way around it. Um, I'm not entirely sure why it's this game that seems to have done it. I mean, it's of course it's hard, but like hard games have happened before. Um, mm. But people are talking about easy modes now, especially in the wake of, of Celeste, which I think changed a lot of people's minds about how they view things like easy modes. And yeah. uh, gameplay enhancers. How do you feel about it? Um, there's a big part of me that feels like uh, kind of has the same view as you. Like I, there's a big part of me that that j really just doesn't care. Uh, <laughs> but the the more I look at the the different arguments, I, I guess my main starting point is. I don't think we're talking about one debate that's clearly defined. I think, I think there are multiple overlapping and sometimes conflicting debates that are kind of crashing together and people are getting certainly on Twitter, but I guess this is the nature of Twitter. People are getting angry with each other over, um, or are they getting angry with each other with with each other in cases where I think they are just talking past each other, sure, uh, and and not really engaging on the same debate. So, one of the things that <clears throat> that this game has raised is this whole question of accessibility, um, and that's a very important topic. Um, but I think it doesn't make sense that it's discussed specifically around Sekiro. I think, uh, I think accessibility in games and in game design is, is a very, very broad topic that is, that is quite separate, um, from the actual question of whether or not Sekiro is, is too difficult. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's a fundamentally different topic. Um, and, and it's very important, but I sort of feel as though making that topic revolve around this one game misses the point um, by a pretty wide margin. Um, so that's kind of one question sitting off to the side that I think people get confused over what that means. Um, yeah. And then I the, think... Yeah. yeah. No, sorry, you go on. I was just going to say uh, the other question is is sort of um, is one that I I go back and forth in terms of what I think. Um, there's this idea, and I guess it's a bit of a pejorative term, but this idea of content tourism. So this idea that you know, okay, um, I, I saw an analogy the other day about the Boston Marathon, and someone made the analogy where they said, well, 
okay, um, the Boston Marathon is this thing. I don't know how many miles it is, but it's a certain number of miles. That what That's what makes it a Boston Marathon. And, you know, in order to participate and, and to do well, to succeed, you know, one has to have uh, a certain level of uh, skill and determination and training and time and all of these things. And that means that there are going to be a whole bunch of people who just, for various reasons, just never participate in the Boston Marathon. And, uh, and, and the question is, well, you know, do we shorten the Boston Marathon to make it more inclusive uh, for people who, who can't otherwise participate? Uh, and, and I have some sympathy for that analogy, um, but I, I also, there is also a part of me that thinks, well, if From Software took a leaf out of Celeste's book and just made an easy mode or a slow mode or a, a mode where, um, you know, like the enemy attacks aren't as quick, so they're easier to parry, um, if, if they did something in that realm, it wouldn't bother me. I mean, I like Sekiro the way it is. I do think the difficulty is part of the the design, but I'm also not really fussed if From decides to, you know, to add another mode, an assist mode or whatever that allows more people to play. Um, I, I don't quite understand people being opposed to that idea in principle. Um, so I don't really have a firm view on it. I think it's a... I think it's a bit of a nuanced conversation that, you know, like, as I said, like everything on Twitter, the nuance just kind of gets stripped out of it and it becomes this, this running battle about people being right or wrong. And I, I, and I think it's not clear that there is a single right answer here. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's something with, um, there's something with Celeste where the, the message and point of the game um is is subjective but in my opinion has a lot to do with telling the player that you can do it it is possible for you to do it um it, it, the the difficulty is not there to slow you down it's it's to stand on top of once you've conquered it and the idea of someone w with any kind of disability or or just like gross inaptitude with with games um maybe they just couldn't maybe they physically could not do it without some some uh help offered to the player in the form of the the uh capabilities that celeste uh do does have in the game and it, when i look at sekiro that's just not what that game's about and I, I don't want it to be the case where we look at every game and we say this has to be for every person. Like, Celeste mm. is specifically saying, no, 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 every person. Every, this game is about every person. And Sekiro isn't. And I, you know, in, in that case, always you can do more to be accessible. Um, always you, you don't want to... Um, excise people who are trying their best with their capabilities and they're putting a lot of time into it and they still can't do it that that mm. is a little rough but at the same time it's like well, if we if we can't do that 
we really run into a problem with with uh with art games and and the state of affairs with like what kind of limitations we are putting on game creators as artists and creators rather than just product manufacturers which is not how i want to think about games um mm. I mean that is the reality of, of most situations, and and this game was published by Activision Blizzard, so it's not like this is some you know niche thing. It from software has gotten pretty big, so maybe there's an argument to be made where like if you are treating it like a product, then treat it like a product and go go full full bore with it. Uh, but I I again agree with 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 you about how much nuance the situation has. Um. To, to go with the Boston Marathon metaphor um, again, you, you which, by the way, is t- just over 26 miles. Uh, I looked it up while you were talking. Um, <laughs> you, you're, yeah, you're totally right. Like, th- there's, there's, no, there's no reason to guarantee someone that they will be able to finish the Boston Marathon. Like, not only is it, would it just be an incorrect thing to guarantee someone... It would just be purposeless. Why? Why should they have to finish it? But mm. we do have the the Special Olympics, um, yes. and and um, if not that specific event, other events like that, where people with specific levels of disability try things that are very difficult for their level of disability, um, and and will still be able to to succeed in, in similar events. Um, but in, in either the Boston Marathon or the Special Olympics, in both cases, um, in, in, in both cases, lazy people won't win. And Mm. people who don't want to strive to their maximum capacity are still excluded. And I think that's okay and even good. I think that is possibly, like, where games should want to be games based on challenge at least where like it, it if you have a problem we can meet to we can rise to meet your problem and that's accessibility but if if yeah. you're really just like a gamer and you're having trouble getting through Sekiro it, I I I have a hard time wondering like cuz that's not accessibility that's just Yes. This person wants to make it easier, and I don't know how much I respect that necessarily. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, for me, this this line of thinking was sort of. There was a good example again on Twitter. There was a. I was watching a discussion going back and forth, uh, and one of the one of the people in the discussion was is a very prominent uh, games journalist. Um, and at one point he, he's, and I, I'm going to badly paraphrase here, but at one point he said something to the effect of, you know, um, you know, I, I'm a father, I've got kids, I, I play a lot of games. Uh, I, I don't have, I don't have time to, um, become an expert in Sekiro. So, so what, I just shouldn't play it. And I, and I, I kind of, um, you know, I, I was a little bit rude. I, I quoted that part of his tweet and I just said, yes, that's right. Like, I'm like, (laughs) you know, there's a million games. It makes me wonder, like, why why you want to have played it. 
because yeah, if, if you don't it sounds like you don't like it like if, if you're if this thing is offending you and you're mm-hmm. you're having a bad time it sounds like you don't like it and maybe we we've created such a uh, culture within games where like now it now is the month to talk about Sekiro so if you're if you want to be involved in the conversation yeah you need yeah. to have played Sekiro and have an opinion and yep. that's not great because there's a you can only talk about so many things so if something else came out this month that's like on the smaller side it doesn't it just doesn't get to be talked about most of the time and that's bad um and 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 b like it creates this this feeling of missing out and and yeah there there's no reason to feel that about a game that you might not be telling yourself that you don't like, but it seems like you don't like it. It seems like it's yeah. not your favorite game. <laughs> I think you're right. It, it's that FOMO thing, fear of missing out. It's like, um, you know, and 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 my my slightly short, flippant comment to this guy was was what I was really trying to say was, you know, and I followed up with a more conciliatory comment. Uh, <laughs> I'm not really wanting to get into fights on Twitter. And I just said, look, you know... Um, yeah, this is already way further than I assumed James Burns would go on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> right. Uh, and I just said, look, you know, we, we all have, especially if you have a family and, you know, you've got a job and all this stuff, like, there's so much content coming out all the time just by definition. Like, you can't be across everything. And that's not the game creator's fault. Like, it just is. You know, so it's going to happen. The only question really is, is around you making the decision about what you prioritize. But if you're uncomfortable with the fact that you can't be across everything all the time, and I know that in games journalism, that can be an actual pressure for people who are being paid, you know, in in a full-time capacity to, that that's their job. I, I that is an element of stress that I understand, but the laws of physics just don't allow it. So you know you you have to be okay with with the fact that you're just not going to be across everything all the time. And you know new games will come out that that get high scores that people love that maybe don't gel with you that you don't particularly like. And that's okay, and it doesn't mean the game creators are bad people. <laughs> like, it it's okay, you know, it's all cool, it's all okay. That's just what I want to say to Twitter, Mitchell. Yeah. It's all good, it's cool, calm down, guys, have fun, it's fine. <laughs> there, are, there are so many games coming out all the time that if you think about it in terms of missing an important game, mm. I, I, you're... You're, 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 I think you're missing the mark because there's so many smaller games that affected me so much more than the thing that everyone is talking about right now. Yeah. Um, like if I, if I were just to say like, what are my, what are my friends playing? What is the, what are the like people in the media saying is great right now at the Mm. end of 2016, I probably would have missed my favorite game of all time now, which is the witness. Um, because I would have been. I would have been playing Doom, and mm. I I later played Doom, and I enjoy Doom. It's it's like fine and fun, but like so ninety five to ninety eight percent of the games I play are just fine and fun, and that's 
kind of just how art is in general. You know, you can't just say, I want to experience a new feeling and just like get get it. You kind of <laughs> and just that's have exactly to... how they say it too. Yeah, <laughs> you have to. You have. To, it's like Animal Crossing. You have to just like bang your head on every tree in your town, and one of them might drop money. Like one of them could drop money, but you you have to just like do some things where you're like I guess this is fun. I guess this is fine. Um, <laughs> And, and, and even then, like, even even with something like Super Mario Odyssey, it's like, I had a lot of fun here. It's not, like, changed my life. And, and so if you think about games that even, like, everyone loves, and you even might love, as something you need to see, you, you might have been missing the point of, like, what, what, what makes games important to you, and will this thing really measure up to it? If you think yes, then go for it. Yeah. But if you're in a yep. position where... You're not getting enough time for a game. Like, you're not getting enough mental bandwidth for a game. If you're a new father and Sekiro comes out, not only is Sekiro, like, unlikely to change your life more than this kid you just had, um, Sekiro is unlikely to be experienced in the optimal way that Sekiro is probably experienced with your level of attention. And that's not anyone's mm. fault. It's just... yeah. You can't. You cannot play the same version of Sekiro that other people are enjoying, in under that, under that circumstance, and no amount of putting it on the Switch to make it portable, or uh, just <laughs> like putting it on Stadia to make all the menus and loading time go away. Whatever you want, like it's still not. It's never gonna be great. It's never gonna be where other people are experiencing it stress-free in their room with a like with the lights off and just watching it on the big screen and mm. like only being able to pay attention about that if you can't do that like it's just not going to work out and and that's you need to miss out on it and be fine with it that's my soapbox yeah. for this episode yeah yeah just, yeah <laughs> like just just to be okay with it like it's fine as you say it's nobody's fault it's just the way things are and it feels weird like honestly, it actually feels weird that that is even a a point worth talking about. Uh, it seems so obvious to me, but at least when you look at things through the very distorted lens of social media, you, I actually start to question those fundamental things, and I think, well, hang on, people are getting angry about all these different things, and sometimes I just think, you know. Um, like that's life guys, you know, like it's okay. It's all good. Don't stress, you know, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm being, you know, maybe I could be accused of being dismissive of people's feelings. I, I don't know. Um, but I just feel certainly for me, like, um, I feel like I can't afford to be that angry about a lot of these, these issues in gaming in general. Uh, I have enough to be angry with in my general life without, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so that's been the Playtime Report. I was going to talk about something else, but it's dumb. So let's move on to the Newsy Nibble. <laughs> okay, here are, the, here are the things that happened since you've last been on the episode, James. I'm just going to list them all. Sure. Um, in no particular order... Google announced Stadia, a a new streaming platform for games that very well could be the first one to work. And I'm putting work in air quotes for the folks at home 
Um, Apple announced Apple Arcade, which is going to be a premium game subscription service for iOS. Nintendo announced a partnership with the developers of Crypt of the Necrodancer to make a sequel to Crypt of the Necrodancer that is also a Zelda game called Cadence of Hyrule. Microsoft's intentions of working with Nintendo seem much clearer after the announcement of Cuphead and some aspects of how that game and other Microsoft games will work with Xbox Live on the Switch. There was an actor named Pierre Taki who was removed from the Sega game Judgment, known in Japan as Judge Eyes, uh, following allegations and an arrest uh, based on cocaine use. And finally, Jason Schreier wrote a tell-all article about the development of Anthem and how it's just buck wild over at Bioware right now. It's just it's just crazy. Um, so, all of those things exist. Where do you want to start? <laughs> uh, maybe we can maybe we can kind of bunch Stadia and Apple Arcade together. Um, all right. Being that these are both new new services um new ways of people getting getting games um obviously stadia is is the far more ambitious project um, of course yeah and i guess like when this news came out i was thinking about a lot of the conversations we've had in the past on this show about um streaming and the feasibility of streaming and like where it's all going, you know, and, and one thing that I've always said is that no matter how, no matter what the technical challenges are and no matter how much it doesn't work now or it hasn't worked a couple of years ago, I definitely believe that this is where the industry is going in general and companies that take the longest to get on board with this, I think, are at higher risk um, of being left out. Um, so it, it's interesting to me, for instance, that even Nintendo, uh, you know, has, um, in, in a fairly isolated way in Japan, you know, has offered a couple of titles. Um, I think Assassin's Creed Odyssey and Resident Evil 7 as streaming experiences on the Switch. Right. So even Nintendo, who often, who I think is often kind of seen as a bit of a laggard with technology, um, although I think that's a bit of a misnomer sometimes, but, you know, even they, this fairly conservative Japanese company has kind of, um, hasn't just experimented with this, but has actually put it into production in, in the market, even if it's just one market. Um, so I was really interested in this. And, you know, like the obvious... Um, like Google's claims are pretty big, right? So they talk about the idea that Stadia in its initial incarnation will support 4K resolutions up to 60 frames a second with HDR. Um, you know, they yeah, talk about it's a little the fact unbelievable. That you could <clears throat> that you could be watching um, you could be watching someone play a game on YouTube and you could launch the game immediately while you're watching that video, you could potentially launch it from the exact place that the YouTuber is at in the game. You know, you can share save states with other people seamlessly. Um, 
there's a lot about that that I think is really interesting and could be really game changing in in ways that we that will prove to be quite unexpected um you know like the ability to just uh, this idea that a game is just this very fluid thing that you can just kind of share with people uh, that you can share your own progress it could change things quite radically for game designers i think when when they start thinking about you know what is a single player experience and and when they think about game progression and you know difficulty and all these other things um mm -hmm. so i think there are a lot of implications around game design that that aren't clear yet but the big thing in my mind is is obviously this question of well a lot of places even in developed highly developed first world you know countries um just don't have the internet speeds to to facilitate this technology um yeah i i have an android phone which is google's own thing and i on my phone it'll sometimes just not connect to my wi-fi just sometimes it'll, mm. it'll happen like once every if i'm like in constant use of it I'll count it maybe once every maybe 10 minutes. And when it happens, it just stops and then it immediately starts again. It, it's for most things, it's fine. Um, mm. Like even with most YouTube videos or anything like that, when I'm watching them, it'll just like buffer past that already. So by the time I get to the part where my Wi-Fi cuts out, it'll just it'll have buffered through uh, the amount of time where it needs to uh, take the time to get back on the Wi-Fi. So most things, it's fine. If it's perfectly live streaming an interactive thing, it just can't work. And I live in a fairly populated, industrial, Californian city. Um, mm. And it really should, if this is going to work. And, like, I, I, if I'm using my phone for this, I that'll not work. Uh, it, it it won't be a thing. They're they're advertising it, it with the intention of saying, "Hey, this can be everywhere." Um, like sure, it can be everywhere, but like, will it will it really be everywhere? Uh, I I don't know. It sounds like in general, though, you're positive with Stadia. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. Okay, um, just because I figure that you know, on its face, I guess, thinking about the fact that this is Google, thinking about the fact that, look, like, looking at what they're promising here, presumably, hopefully, a lot of these issues um, and, and the kind of issues you're talking about are things that they've been thinking about and factoring into this design, hopefully. Um, I mean, I guess there won't be a solution for everything, but one of the things I found interesting is that... Um, According to Phil Harrison, who is the, the head of this Stadia project, who, of course, used to work uh, for Sony's PlayStation business, um, he, was, he was saying that uh, in order for games to be fully functional in 4K at 60 frames a second, they are going to require a minimum connection speed of 30 megabits per second. Um, and 
if you want to play a game at 1080p at 60 frames a second to have no buffer and no lag, a minimum connection, a connection speed of 25 megabits per second is considered optimal. Now, what's interesting about that is, and, and this is a little bit, um, this is a slightly dodgy fact because I'm now going to talk about average broadband speeds, which, you know, you know, that comes with a bit of baggage because obviously it depends where you live, say within the USA. Um, but the average broadband speed in the USA, according to Google themselves, is 70.75 megabits per second. So the implication here is that, yes, you require reasonably fast broadband connection, but Google seemed to be really focused on, I don't know if it's a, a compression technique that they're using, I don't know how they're doing it, but they seem to be... Um, trying to shoot for a, a reasonably modest connection speed um, as far as broadband goes. Um, now, Stadia is, is obviously debuting in the USA. Uh, there's no announcement about it coming to Australia. Uh, Australia's internet is all over the place. Um, our average apparently is 25 0.88 megabits per second. Um, I'm on the fastest version of our internet in Australia. So I get, and, and I still get much lower than they say I should. I get about 47 megabits per second from my house. So, um, and apparently the global average is around 40 megabits per second for, for high-speed broadband. So it's just interesting because, you know, on the face of it, you sort of say, well, hang on a minute, who's actually going to be able to connect to this thing and use it? Um, but they seem to be really shooting for something that's that runs in a stable way on kind of a reasonably modest connection speed. Yeah. Did you watch the Stadia announcement presentation? I, <laughs> I watched the... Um, Oh, uh, it was like Stadia announcement in five minutes. Okay. <laughs> I watched one of those. Um, so I kind of got the highlights, but I didn't watch the whole kind of long presentation. Well, they were talking about how you could, uh, back in November, Google did mm. what we now know is a, t is a test drive of streaming mm. Assassin's Creed Odyssey in browser. Um mm. And during the announcement of Stadia, they kept saying, yeah, we were testing it then, and it, it worked great, so we're, like, really happy about the results there. Um, and it just didn't. It, like, that's, like, boldface, if, if not a lie, a, a manipulation of the truth, at the very least. Um, mm. it, it worked all right. It, it worked, which is good, and a lot of things don't. Uh, but it... <laughs> only worked enough to say that it worked i like a, a yeah. lot of a lot of choppiness happened a lot of resolution issues happened um there there was even some like corruption issues th that i heard about um it's it wasn't great it was just all right and mm. for them to say that that was great Makes me worried about like okay, well, how do you, how do you feel about your output with Stadia later on the year, Google? Because 
<laughs> you didn't show much. You showed, um, again, it was Assassin's Creed Odyssey running on Stadia, and they did the save state sharing thing where they could play on one computer, go to a certain spot, get the, the state, and then send it to their account. So they'd pull it up on a different, uh, like on a phone or an iPad or a, a, a bad laptop, and, and the point was like, look how fast I'm, I'm changing where I'm playing. Uh, and it's all through Stadia. And that was the only thing they did. It was impressive. It, it was impressive. But that was the only thing they did in real time at that press conference. Excepting, they, they brought up the the uh, Doom Eternal developers. And they showed the uh, Doom Eternal running on Stadia. And the developers of Doom Eternal said, If you want to show off a game... To look great, you pick Doom. And then they showed the the title <laughs> screen of Doom Eternal, and like asteroids were popping in and out, and it looked choppy. Like mm. this looks bad. Like what you're showing me so far is not excellence. It, it, and I kept thinking, like, yeah, if if all of this stuff works like you say it works, <clears> then <throat> it is big. But this would be like Nintendo coming out in 1996 before the N64 came out. In talking all about rendering real-time polygons and a controllable camera and and uh, realistic physics in 3D space rendered real-time on an affordable game console that you can have in your house, um, and, and then you didn't show Mario 64, then like you you mm. didn't actually answer those concerns of like, can you do this? It yeah. wouldn't have gone well. It, it like I I watched those uh, early N sixty four announcement reveals and everyone was just like it. They were it seemed like they were kind of bored for the first half of the press conference and then they showed Mario mm-hmm. sixty four running in real time with a guy on a controller just attached to a projector and everyone lost their damn minds. And yeah. if 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 they did that with Stadia, if they really went for it and they said like here's all this stuff and maybe they thought they did. With, with having Doom there and having Assassin's Creed running in that way. But, like, if Stadia works how it does, it'll be a comparable jump in technology to what we got with the N64. I think that's true. Um, mm. it, it is really up there. But I, I the proof is in the pudding, man, and I am, I'm pretty puddingless. <laughs> I have, I have yeah, no tapioca to have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, you're right, you know, um, ultimately it comes down to, especially when they launch this thing, like what are they launching with? So they've talked about a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm I'm assuming one thing that might happen is they might say, they might deal with it in a much more iterative way when they roll it out. So they might say, well, you know, we're actually going to launch with 1080p games like, you know, um, they might launch with something that's slightly lesser and then build up to the full 4K experience or the 8K experience or whatever they mentioned. Um, it's It'll be interesting to see because the thing with this as well is, I think, if regardless of what they promise, if it doesn't work in practice, if if that experience of playing the game is really subpar and really choppy, um, and, and to the point where a lot of people view it as, um, you know, that it, it's it's worth playing on traditional consoles rather than Stadia, then 
I mean, the market is going to very quickly, um, you know, prove the point, I guess. Um, so I'm very interested to see where they go with this and kind of how they roll it out. I, I, th I think they're going to have to be very careful and do it in a very incremental way. I think it's going to be a kind of like a long launch um, because once they really have it out there in the wild and actual players are jumping on, um, I I'm assuming they're going to have a ton of feedback and they're going to have a ton of things they need to address. Um, but just based on what they've presented so far, I mean, they seem to be all in. It seems to be a pretty massive kind it of does. investment. So it does. yes, it'll be very interesting to watch. Now, um, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Daryl Baxter on the show to talk about Apple Arcade when that was mm -hmm. uh, first announced. What What do you think about Apple Arcade, um, especially compared to what Google's doing? Well, I mean, I mean, they're very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely um, very very modest compared to what Google's doing. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of see it as another. I guess it's kind of like Apple's version of Xbox Game Pass, right? It's Mm -hmm. It's that kind of service. Um, there are some things that I like about it. Uh, the fact that it's one subscription for many games. Uh, the fact that they've promised no ads or additional purchases, I think is quite a, a positive thing. Um, the fact that you can actually play games offline and save and resume across different devices is all really good stuff that I think is sort of I think a lot of those things are becoming increasingly expected, at least from me. Like, and I'm not just talking about Apple. Um, like, as we start to see next gen consoles being announced, I'm expecting to see a lot of this stuff as standard in in new platforms. I don't see it as kind of revolutionary. I think it's just logical next step. Um, I guess the only thing, and I don't know if this has been confirmed. I've seen some conversation around it. The thing that worries me is this whole conversation around the payment model for developers. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you touched on this. Definitely. Um, yeah, my, my understanding just based on the, the bits and pieces I've read is that uh, developers are not uh, developers are paid based on screen time well that's the which, fear we don't have that confirmation yeah. yet um but things like hulu and netflix and spotify that manage big catalogs of content that they don't own do work if not purely through that model it, at least that model on top of a flat structure um mm where if you're a really unknown artist you might actually have a better time or at least make more money through the same amount of views outside of spotify because your music um could could perform poorly enough on spotify that you go to an extreme uh part of their payment model where you'll get some money just from being part of Spotify, but your your repeated income, uh, your your royalties, just won't really be there because you're not selling your own thing. And if uh, 
that that that's when you have music too that's when you have a show and that's honestly fine with me kind of i mean like it it's still a, you know you're you're mixing capitalism with, with art creation and like that's always going to be iffy right but that to me that sounds like fair for a company to offer as a structure mm. the problem mm. is that all of those things have set durations for the most part music is going to be like three minutes long per song almost no matter what you do Mm -hmm. um television is going to be half hour or one hour movies are going to be closer to two hours and that's just how they are and you watch the whole or you listen to the whole thing most of the time with uh with games you have no idea how long that thing is there's no there's no standard and that's good for the most part we we've enjoyed that that is not a standardized thing because that means that you can play a game on and off like for 15 seconds and then you put your phone away and then you take it out like an hour later and play another 15 seconds or you can have a 100 hour rpg that you need to sit through like massive sessions at once um and in apple's model one of those things i'm we don't exactly know what would be prioritized there but one of those things is going to be paid out a lot more than the other just based on the format so it could have the negative effect of homogenizing um, the, the, the structure of games on phones. But it's yeah. not like they already... It's not like they're not already pretty homogenized on phones. It, it, it's, it's kind of six in one hand, half dozen in the other, when you consider the fact that like these are still going to be premium games, and for the consumer, that's going to be a lot more beneficial to play than than most free-to-play games um yeah, yeah and i think um i think there's a genuine question about how this if this model that we're talking about if this it really is what they're doing and they're placing emphasis on screen time uh i think there are some legitimate concerns but i also think it's not entirely clear how this will really articulate from a game design perspective because like the horror story scenario is that um, if I'm being paid primarily in screen time and that's my most important metric of success, then I might do things that are dodgy to artificially extend screen time. Like even things like conceivably, you know, increasing load times or not allowing you to skip character dialogue or, you know, various various things have been proposed, various horror stories have been proposed as to what this might incentivize developers to do. But on the other hand, I think the reverse could also be true because if you're, a, if you're playing a game and you get the sense that the developer's not respecting your time and that they're deliberately padding things out and it's not a good experience, then presumably that makes you much more likely to just quit the game and stop playing it altogether. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there could be, it, it sounds bad on the surface, but depending how it's, how it works, there could be a bit of a, a self-correcting mechanism there as well. Like my incentive is not just to pad things out. My incentive is to make sure that all of the time that you're spending on my game is enjoyable and that I'm engaging positively with you so that you want more of it, you know, well, so you want to keep coming back. Well, I mean, that's a hope. Back. 
that that would be great yeah, and i'm, I'm sure great. there are some some uh probably indie developers working on this platform that do have that in mind and i don't want to yeah. lump everyone together here uh in in how they'll react to this uh the, the, this uh salary structure but mo- through most of time through most of video games existence there's never been a monetary benefit through mainline console video games there's been other stuff but like through console traditional games there's never been a financial benefit to really padding it out there and they still do it it like the you'd think that the shorter amount of time you can uh make a game means shorter development times which means smaller budgets which should mean greater returns uh if you're selling a game as an individual product even going back to the arcade days you want to kick the player out as soon as possible so they spend yes. another quarter um yeah and and uh if you're a console provider like one of the big three you have this online store of like okay you want to play a bunch of these games so there's actually an incentive to make them shorter mm. and still still in that environment You'll you'll get Kingdom Hearts three, which is ten hours of screen t- uh, uh, of a uh, cutscenes, mm-hmm. like over over ten hours, and, and that's not that crazy. I mean, it, it is crazy, but like, you, Metal Gear Solid did the same thing, and that was a, a very money hungry company. Somehow, just didn't want. They just uh, were, were fine padding the time, and now that there's a financial incentive to do it, um, I I mean, I don't. I, I don't think that time will be fun. I don't think for the mo for the most <laughs> for most of the games in this program, the the padding that they introduce to it because they can't do microtransactions and they can't do advertisements. The padding that they introduce will be a lot of fetch quests and a lot of repeated content that you need to repeat multiple times before you move on to the next aspect of the game. Um, in order to game Apple's monetization strategy, depending on the exact mm. algorithm they use. And I'm really afraid of that. I, I don't think that'll be good. I don't think that'll be healthy. Yeah. 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 The, I think that that's definitely a, that's definitely a big risk. Um, and I guess, on the, you know, as I say, I'm a little bit torn on it. I, I definitely see some risks here. And on the other side, I wonder if, um, you know, ha- having more, um, f- from a development standpoint, having more ways, more channels of getting your, your game in front of people is, is at least in theory, is always a good thing. So um, I'm, I'm eager to learn more about exactly how this payment model is going to work. And I assume that... Um, I assume that at some point we'll have a developer probably talking about it in a bit more detail. Probably, yeah. Um, do you want to talk about Cadence of Hyrule? That I think it's happier. <laughs> That's much happier, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, Nintendo's just letting this indie developer not just use a Link costume or or have a cameo from like Mario in in the side or something. They're they're just letting an indie developer make a Zelda game. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Interesting. Yeah, 
Like Nintendo have a have a very long history of um, outsourcing development to small studios, uh, even in their big franchises. But sure. usually, what happens is, you know, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of I'm sure Nintendo are um, you know closely monitoring development, and 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 they would be a they would be a, a close participant. Uh, on this in various ways but um definitely you know what's different about this is is this is kind of this interesting mashup uh, you know direct mashup of of this huge nintendo franchise and this small indie franchise and i've never played um crypt of the neurodancer but when i watched this trailer uh, i just think it looks so cool like and, it, I, and it does I, it's really so awesome cool. that Nintendo are taking this this chance on something like this. It is. Um it it, it especially because uh when when we heard about Mario plus Rabbids, which I would say is maybe comparable uh to this, we we heard that Miyamoto talked to the uh the director of the game over at Ubisoft, Davide Soliani, and he was talking to to Soliani about like you can you you can make a Mario game with Rabbids but there need to be some constraints. And, and one of the big ones was that like, it can't be a game where you run and jump around as Mario. That can't mm. be one of the, the, the big deals. It, it, it can't be a platformer. So yeah. he, he uh, took, took a sideways approach and made it this tactics game that was alien to both Rabbids and Mario. And it, it, it worked out really well. That's a good game. Um, this game is also not a normal Zelda game. But it's also kind of a lot like a Zelda game. It's yeah. It, it has dungeons and it has uh just a, the the same kind of overhead view that you have in a Link to the Past or Link's Awakening, um, and the you control Link. Th- this is this is much more like a Zelda game than anyone except Nintendo themselves, obviously, and I'd say Capcom have ever made. And they're they're really they're really just letting him do it. Uh, the <laughs> the people behind Crypt of the Necrodancer have not made that many other games. Mm. It's just really impressive that uh, apparently Miyamoto and Aonuma both liked Crypt of the Necrodancer so much that like this is what sold them. They just liked the original game. Yeah, which is really impressive. Yeah. And there's something about. Uh, there's something about the way Nintendo have really leaned into indie gaming on the Switch in a way that's not just about, um, you know, obviously there's a commercial consideration to it and that's that's obviously a primary driver, but the way that they've um, really focused on, you know, they've had their Nindies showcases um, they've put a lot of work into using their size to promote indie projects, various indie projects. Um, it, it hasn't just been like a lip service thing. They've really kind of done a lot of work to support indie gaming on the Switch. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think that's one of the big contributors to, to the Switch's success. Um, and this is kind of, this to me kind of seems like a logical extension of that. Like now they're, 
Now they're kind of working directly on this creative level with indie studios. And I really hope to see more of it because I think we're seeing such great collaboration coming out of this. Um, and I mean, obviously more and more big third-party studios are supporting the Switch as well. Uh, you know, I think it's it's pretty incredible we're getting Mortal Kombat 11 on Switch on day one along with other platforms. Um, but this is kind of a unique angle for Nintendo and for the Switch, and it seems to be working really, really well. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, exciting to me to think back. I, I, I sometimes think back of, like, other past Nintendo consoles, and I, I try to think, like, what are the what are the big name releases on this console? Mm. And it's always um, it's always Nintendo first party stuff. And in, in in the NES era, you had some mostly third party or mostly first party stuff, and then some some like Mega Man Castlevania thrown in there, and N sixty four mostly third party stuff. Mostly first, sorry, first, I keep meaning to say first uh, party stuff. And then you throw maybe some rare stuff in there, some Banjo-Kazooie, some GoldenEye as like the top things. And then GameCube, Wii, and Wii U are entirely first party as the main like big draws, except I would maybe throw Resident Evil 4 to GameCube. And now yeah. with the Switch, if I say like, what 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 are like the switch games i'll still definitely say breath of the wild and mario odyssey before anything else splatoon 2 um yeah but like the way i think about the switch and i think the way a lot of people are thinking about the switch also celeste also hollow knight as like the big switch games and not only is that new for nintendo to to have third parties of any kind it's new for indies to be Mm. elevated to that level um Xbox 360 had a little bit of that at, at their the beginning of their push, but I think they lost their incentive there. And now Nintendo is, is very keen on padding out the time between major Nintendo releases, which I'm sure monetarily are still the bulk of what they think of internally as the Switch catalog. Mm. Um, but it, culturally, it, it leaves a lot of room for like Baba as you to have... Yeah, a, a big push on on this console to be a system seller for some people. Yeah, and I, I think that's cool. Yeah, I think it's good for the industry too. And it's it's not often. It feels like uh, with a lot of the the negative things that happen and the controversies, um, it it feels like you can't often genuinely say that something is just healthy for the industry. But I think this whole relationship between Nintendo and Indies is has is has got to be a big net positive for the whole industry. Yeah. It yes. It it definitely seems like it is at least. Um speaking of third-party support on Nintendo consoles, let's talk about Cuphead cuz that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. Microsoft is I don't know if they're publishing it or if the the individual team is publishing it on switch but they're they're letting something that they have complete legal control over cuphead be published on switch and it's just kind of a thing that's happening it's just like how the game will go <laughs> yeah it see obviously cuphead is tonally a great fit for the platform um definitely in in, yeah. in both gameplay and aesthetics 
but you know it's it's a first party Microsoft thing. And Microsoft has been proving for some time that they're really not thinking in those terms anymore. But this is, I, I think, one one of the first big things outside of Minecraft. Because Minecraft was always on everything, so that's, you know, mm. unavoidable. This yeah. was avoidable. They did not have to do this. Yeah. Rumor has it, and actually this might be confirmed, that the Cuphead development team was approached by Microsoft and asked, do you want to make this a Switch game? So it it didn't come from Nintendo asking for it. it didn't come from the developers wanting to do it. I'm I, although I'm sure both of those parties are are really happy with the arrangement. It came from Microsoft wanting to support the Switch. Do you think we'll get more of that in the near future? Uh well, it it seems like we are well, I mean it, it may not pan out this way, but it seems to me like we're kind of at the dawn of a very different approach from Microsoft that that's kind of been hinted at for a while. Um, I think if we're now getting cuphead, then what's to stop any number of other franchises coming to switch? Um, I guess the only thing in my mind is I kind of wonder what all of this means for their next generation Xbox. Um, Yeah. Like, so is it, is it a fundamental change in strategy where they start to say, look, we're not, we're more about um, franchises and, and publishing and distributing franchises than we are about a specific hardware platform. And to some extent that's been true for a while with um you know making xbox games available on pc as well right but i so i wonder if it's that or if it's just literally i mean i'm being reductive but like hey we're desperate xbox isn't doing well we need to get some money like um switch is is perfect because it's not really a direct competitor like they would obviously never do this on a on playstation um so there could be an element here of them sort of saying, well, you know, the next Xbox is going to be all about this much more expensive, high-end, you know, ultra high-fidelity experience, and the Switch just does not play in that in that ballpark. It's on a it's a totally different thing. So it's actually now a very complementary arrangement. Um, uh, and it and it could be a way for Microsoft to engage a broader base of players with their franchises as kind of a maybe as kind of a gateway drug to to Xbox, kind of like what Nintendo is trying to do with smartphones and yeah, Switch. Yeah, right, sure. Um, you know where it's just an extension of the ecosystem. So I. I I'm that's where I'm curious. Like I'm thinking, okay, what's yeah. Microsoft's strategy here? I, I guess uh, my I thing mean, with that is just like it, as much as those words sound right, as, as much as like the idea of, <laughs> of Switch being complimentary because it's not exactly doing the same thing sounds correct. Reggie Fizeme came out within the last I, I want to say like six months or so. I don't remember exactly when, but he was at a tech conference, and someone asked about switch can like viewing um the xbox one and ps4 as competitors and he said not ex not exactly yes but only in the sense that we're competing with everything for your time 
So it, even even if Xbox doesn't view Switch the Switch as a uh, competitor for high fidelity gaming, still they're competing for time, and mm. it, it it seems it seems wrong. It seems like it seems <laughs> like not the thing to do. Um, it, it it doesn't seem like Microsoft putting Microsoft Word on on uh, Mac because you know there's there's Mac fans out there that just won't get a PC. It doesn't seem like that because that um, kind of says like we lost that sale already. Let's just make some money on Microsoft Office where we can. This seems like campaigning for the Switch almost. It, it, it's like, well, do I want to buy a Switch or I want to buy an Xbox One? Well, I'm excited about Cuphead, so I guess. Oh no, that's on both. I'll get the Switch then. Like, like it, 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 it honestly seems ad- advertisinal. Advertisinal. Yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> I think you've just invented a word. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean that that's a really good point and and it makes me wonder if there's a bit of a maybe capitulation is too strong a word but like from Microsoft's point of view they they might have made the calculation where they say look we we think that from a hardware platform perspective we we can't um you know we're, we're now not looking to capture the mass market we're looking to capture this kind of niche area where probably they're a bit more aligned with the PlayStation 4. Um, but we are, we're already publishing our games on the PC as well. Um, you know, so our, our hardware business is kind of capturing one corner, but we don't want to limit our franchises to that niche market. We want to try and get our franchises in front of as many people as possible in these different segments. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I'm really fascinated by this whole question. Like I, I would love to know what Microsoft is sort of thinking, um, what their strategy is here around this. And I think, I feel like when we see a next gen Xbox from them, that might answer some of these questions because, you know, the nature of that platform and the way they pitch it to us, I think will tell us a lot about um, kind of where, like, is their whole Xbox business about the next Xbox or is it actually the case that the Xbox hardware is kind of just one component of this bigger Xbox brand um, that, that is now a little bit more like an ecosystem than a single platform? Right. I don't yeah. Know how? Yeah. How they're thinking of it. My fear, and, and I really don't know how justified this is. My fear is that like, it's just not an actual strategy. It's they looked at yeah, Cuphead yeah. and they said this only sold yeah. all right compared to the acclaim it got. I bet it could sell more, and that would at yeah. least benefit this company that we want to keep a relationship with and we don't want to go under. So we'll we'll do we'll let this happen and just it's you know it's a one-time fun thing and we're not proud it can be on whatever console like if e3 comes and goes and there's not like some reason announced there's not like oh i get it (laughs) i (laughs) if there's not something that suddenly makes it make sense i'm gonna be really nervous about 
the future of Xbox because it's one of those things that can just exist in the industry in a corner in a corner and like it has an IV drip so if it's not competing for food in the room <laughs> it it won't die. Yes. Yeah. Like it it, yes. it it could be very hungry and it won't die because it's so moneyed that like just the money will always <laughs> come in. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's uh it's that that distant elderly relative that you see at family reunions and you and you're sort of surprised oh i thought they were dead um <laughs> it like <laughs> i i yeah i know exactly what you mean and and i i think maybe i'm hoping for for a strategy but uh, you could very well be right that it's just literally like you know got, got to keep grandpa around like give him some cake like mm-hmm. he's still here you know while they're looking at their watch <laughs> yeah because i could i could totally see like the, the 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 interviews are always like what why did you think this uh why why did you think this would be a great idea for your brand to have cuphead come to switch and the executives always say there was no directive behind it we saw the switch we saw cuphead they looked like a perfect match and you assume like okay well you're lying like you can't executive (laughs) executives can't just say what their plans are you have to be thinking of something a little bit deeper than that but what if they aren't what what if they just (laughs) aren't and that is the the full extent of their thought process Yeah, they they come in. They they all come into the kitchen for coffee on Monday morning, and they're like, you know, I think we should put this game on Switch. It just looks like a really good match. Yeah, yeah. let's do it. And like it could it, be. Could I be. I wrote um I wrote a in retrospect somewhat scathing article that you is the only article I wrote for Super Jump that you declined. Um, yes. In in uh, 2017. Just after E3, it was my my report on the Microsoft press conference for that E3. And that, uh, for those who don't remember, that year was the year that they uh, fully announced and, and f- first pushed the Xbox One X. And I was in the audience at that press conference, and I was thinking that whole time, this is, what are you doing? doing (laughs) what are you doing here because this isn't going to appeal to people in any significant way that you haven't already cornered the market on and Mm. then i i I learned a couple days later but still before i i wrote the thing um that they would be producing and selling xbox one x units at a loss so not only are they trying to sell this thing they're they're doing it that like thing that someone didn't ask for. They're 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 doing it at a loss. They're losing money from doing this. And what I wrote was basically like, Microsoft. What you I I love the thought. I love the thought, Microsoft, because what you're doing is really benefiting the consumer. Uh, the consumer. And if you're if you're just like talking about, you you remove the aspect of like the quality of the games, which these companies think they have control over. I doubt how much control they actually have over like how good a game will be in the end. If you remove that from the equation, the most consumer-friendly console this generation, by an incredibly large margin, was Microsoft. They they were just very, very nice to their, their player base. 
so that's why I I always root for Microsoft from now on. That like they they are the most consumer friendly bunch. If the entire industry uh, were were three competing Microsofts rather than uh, Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo, I I wonder if it might be a lot. I mean, quote unquote, healthier if, if everyone had the mindset Microsoft is having. But at the same time, where are you making your money? Where is it coming from? None of none of this seems profitable at all. And it still doesn't. It still kind of doesn't when you're putting what what the the few highly acclaimed Microsoft exclusive games like Cuphead and Minecraft on other consoles and, and like removing the impotence to buy the console. I don't get it. And I want their I want them to be successful. Because of how uh, beneficial to the consumer they they really have been right lately, but if this if, if the route that they've chosen proves to be financially unsuccessful, they're just going to pivot on it hardcore, and the rest of the industry will listen and watch as that happens. So I I, I a loss for Microsoft as big as they are is honestly a little bit of a loss for all of us. So I do worry about them, and I, I I worry that like the these seemingly cool decisions aren't building to something good. <laughs> they're they're not building to anything that they're gonna f- benefit from. Yeah, I think the most um, the most simple explanation is 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 exactly along the lines of what you said. Like it's it they they they've bought these they've purchased these development studios to make exclusive content their problem all the way along with xbox was lack of great exclusive content there just was not enough of a reason for a lot of people to buy an xbox certainly over a a playstation 4 Um, now obviously there's a lead time like not just to engineer new hardware but um, the new hardware doesn't matter at all unless they have the content which i think is the problem with xbox one x like who cares that you can get a slightly better resolution that frankly most people won't even notice um most people don't care enough about those incremental differences to buy an expensive new platform so um it's all about exclusive content and i think because of that long lead time like they've only just made these purchases quite recently it's going to take time to get a pipeline of content through on this new platform mm-hmm. in in my mind it, it could just simply be that they need a shot in the arm in their balance sheet you know like they need some money that their xbox business needs some money and a quick way to get money is to take games you've already published um you know port them to other very very you know much higher volume successful platforms and um and earn money that way um and and it could just be that that that's that that's as simple as you know that that, that that's what it is. They're yes. just getting some cash in the arm, you know. Yeah, like, while, yeah. While they're waiting for this new thing. That that is true. But you were talking earlier about like capturing a market, and the the thing the thing about going third party on other people's consoles is that you don't capture a market. You you can have an you can release Cuphead on the switch and people will love it and people will play it for the first time 
And even if they had like no idea what it even was before they saw it on the Nintendo eShop and then learned everything about it and became like the game's biggest fan, it will make them no more likely to buy Hellblade, which is another Microsoft game that is now releasing on Switch. Because those you didn't capture a market, you didn't say anything with that um with that sale that, hey, you like this? That means you like Microsoft games. Where I mean, that, that would always be kind of irrational, but when you have a console, that happens. When you like God of War, you like what Sony's doing right now. Like, that's how you say it in your, your head subconsciously. And you, you end up ca- capturing a market. So, like, when they... The, the, the coolest thing I've seen Microsoft do for themselves is buy up all those studios. I really think that'll help to, to a, a, a big degree... When they have so many more first-party studios, so all of a sudden they can say things like, "Yeah, why not? We're bringing back Halo and Fable, and like within the next ten years, probably like Perfect Dark and Banjo again, uh, and mm-hmm. and we're maintaining Gears and Forza." So all now all of a sudden, you have a bunch of series that are actually very much liked and enjoyed, and they are Microsoft exclusive. But as soon as you say like that that halo game that you're excited about like yeah just you know buy it on pc that banjo game get it on switch F- uh fable yeah that'll be on phones like that as soon as you do that <laughs> it it just it, you you're you're surrendering the opportunity to make the the to, to to make the player use your platform which is again very consumer friendly but the reason it's so consumer friendly is because you're giving up a big stake in letting yourself be a brand that captures an audience and is respected by name um yeah i i yeah i'm i'm not it's mad at definitely... them i think it's good it's just i'm worried <laughs> for them yeah, yeah, and and you know there is a there's a tension there between there's definitely a tension between um, being a seeing yourself as a publisher of content where you're kind of device agnostic, mm-hmm. um, you know, more like kind of an EA type of business versus we've chosen to um, you know we've chosen to deliver exclusive content on our platform because. If we control the platform, there are a whole host of reasons why that's good for us as a business. Um, you know, ultimately, it's a commercial question. But of course, they're now stuck in this funny situation where they they sort of, I think, had that strategy at least. Um, they, they were looking and sounding and acting like a, a platform owner that was, that was doing this. Uh, but but that single platform has has really largely sort of failed commercially, uh, certainly compared to Xbox 360, um, and so they're now stuck in this funny kind of limbo period where they, you know, are they going to really double down on this with the next Xbox, or are they going to go more in the direction of of a third party publisher? Um, which which you know it's it's hard to be stuck in the middle between the two i think i i completely agree this episode is getting a little long um <laughs> let me just briefly summarize this judgment thing um pierre taki caught being associated with 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 cocaine 
in Japan, this is a huge cultural taboo. It, drug use mm. in general is is viewed um, way more extremely than it is currently viewed in in most English speaking countries. Um, so he's just he's just done. He's out of of work. He's definitely not working anymore. He, um, he won't be hired. It, it's very unlikely he makes a comeback, just with the culture being what it is. Um, and he was a he was a character in, in both voice and model in Judgment, and um, all of Judgment, like all called Judge Eyes in Japan, all all the copies of that game were recalled. It was taken off the digital stores, and for international markets, uh, they are retooling the game to remove that character and replace him with a different character. Uh, so I, I, I don't, there's not much here to talk about other than like, seems extreme, <laughs> seems, seems pretty <laughs> extreme for, uh, for, for what it is like in, in America, some celebrities will just talk about using Coke and it'll just be fine. It'll depending on what kind of celebrity you are. Like if you're a rapper, that's just like, you can put that in a song and yeah. it would, it would be fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's and and it's interesting because um, I have seen some reaction to this, and of course, our tendency in in quote unquote like Western countries is to is to judge scenarios like this based on our experience and our cultural um, norms, and of course, you know if if you're if you're a Japanese person living in Japan, growing up in Japan, and that's your your cultural environment, then um, there's an element where there's an element of this where you kind of have to say, well, you know, like this is the way business is done in Japan. This is the culture. You know what the culture is. You're obviously taking, uh, you must be taking a very known risk when you do something like this in that context. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only thing I would say is, I guess that's also an inexpensive observation. It's easy to say, well, you should have thought about it before you did this. You know, like people do stuff, people make mistakes. Um, my, my only thought, I mean, I, I don't know this, this man at all, but my only thought is, is just to remember that, you know, he, regardless of what's going on here, he's a human being. And, um, you know, uh, I, I wish him well, I hope he, <laughs> I hope things get sorted out for him and that he's able to have some sort of um, livelihood and, you know, some way of some kind of reasonable future. Right. It, sometimes you forget that of the first world countries, um, Japan is maybe one of the most conservative ones, if not the most conservative one in a lot of aspects that um, yes. I, I, I think you forget sometimes, but like, they're they're really behind on on uh i i i'm painting with a large brush here you know of course individuals in japan are gonna have like different feelings about it and i'm sure there's a lot of japanese citizens that are just like why do you care about this it's not a big deal um but in, in behind on tolerance um on, on a lot of different fronts on on uh lgbt issues have been coming up there in in higher frequencies recently and uh uh, the treatment of drug users, which is like, that's not even how we think about it in, in the Western world. We don't think about the treatment of drug users as a thing. We talk about like, 
um like like legalization of of drugs and and stuff like that so uh yeah just just an interesting thing just a reminder that uh so so much of this this great hobby in the sky that we call gaming uh is is very tied into uh cultural norms and and cultural taboos of a country that we don't really share a whole lot with culturally um Mm. Yeah, just a I not fun, but kind of just a stop and smell the roses news article. Now the next thing, <laughs> and last one, <laughs> anthem. Um, so d- did you read Jason Schreier's article on the development of anthem at Bioware? I did indeed. Okay, so oh man, it's it's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so much, so much of that article was was just simultaneously hilarious and deeply upsetting to me how um we always talked about from an outsider perspective man there's probably different teams at bioware right we assume that there's an a team and a b team and what what i am surprised by is how internal that thought was like there are teams at bioware that know they are the a team and that there's like other teams at Bioware that know that they aren't, and they like value themselves that way. And there's things. Um, th- th- he he makes a point here to say like it's not related to crunch this time. Like most of what uh, has been reported no. by him has has been like a crunch thing. Apparently Anthem mm-hmm. didn't crunch that much. Uh, you know, there's always going to be some, but it 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 really didn't. It was just like a high stress thing. The whole time, anyway, because of how the executives at Bioware weren't really listening to any advice. Uh, the, the the lower teams were treated m- more poorly than the, the thought-to-be-higher teams. And uh, they believed in this thing called Bioware Magic. And this is, I, I think, mm. maybe the biggest takeaway from this article that we're, we're going to be thinking about for a while. Bioware Magic is the idea that, like, we we made Knights of the Old Republic. We made Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3. We made Dragon Age Inquisition, which recently won Game of the Year. And it they've always had problems. They've always had development issues. But late in development... Don't, don't worry about it right now, guys. Because late in development, that old Bioware magic will come out. And it'll make everything great again. And they thought so highly of their own prestige and their own like holier than thou <laughs> um ability that they would ignore problems with the game in in the face of hoping that bioware magic would save them them knowing that they themselves are bioware it's, it's like like hoping <laughs> that they would conjure magic for themselves without knowing how they were going to do it they were just counting on it um that's that's crazy. That's that's crazy to me that people operate like that, at at such a high stakes level. <laughs> um, we were having uh, I don't know if you remember this, but um, in our in our super jump team Discord chat, there was a discussion a while ago before this article came out. It was sort of around the time when. 
the the big reviews were happening around Anthem and it was becoming very clear that that this, you know, that there was a quite a serious problem here. Um and I I remember um I, I sort of got into a bit of a it, it got it turned into a bit of a fiery discussion among our team because there were a lot of it was perfectly really good... civil. I remember this. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it was what what was interesting about it was that it was um you know there there was a lot of there were a lot of points made that I think were very much on the right track um that that really proved to be important factors here like for example the the whole question of imposing the frostbite engine on the team um and the idea that you know, this is this is an engine that, for a whole host of reasons, is not easy to work with anyway. Um, you know, it's difficult to debug. Uh, um, there are a lot of bespoke elements to it that aren't sort of well supported. Um, and of course, what we learned in the article is that the the team had to enhance the engine themselves very significantly in a lot of ways. Yeah, they really struggled with it. They they um they were trying to implement design ideas and features that the engine was really never built to support in the first place and that caused a lot of problems mm-hmm. um but the point that i made in the chat which i mitchell believe i've been vindicated by this article <laughs> is <laughs> is that all of those things i i sort of suspected were true and and they've definitely been proven to be true but when I read this really long article, <clears throat> the main takeaway I have is that this is the core problem here is not with is definitely not with the teams that were making these games because there were obviously other games involved here. Um, it's it's a leadership problem. It's a product management problem. I mean, a lot of these decisions, a lot of these checkpoints that will have happened through this project just <laughs> a lot of things here should just never have happened uh, because there was a huge leadership vacuum here. There was a, w- one of the big themes of the article is this idea of decision paralysis. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> the idea that you'd have a room full of people going back and forth forever round and round in circles, something like, I think the flying mechanic was one of them. It would be implemented. It would be removed. It would be re-implemented. Like it was just a mess. And I've been in discussions like that in my job in, in software development with big teams. And one of the things I think that's really important is uh, sometimes is even if you're not a hundred percent sure you're making the absolute correct decision, a decision needs to be made. There needs to be a decision maker. Right. You know, someone needs to make that decision and own that decision, like given the information they have at the time. And so a lot of what I saw in this article was among all of the detail of specific problems, I'm thinking, man, like they need, these guys need some product management training. Like this is a lot of this to me is product management 101. Um, they were talking in the article about games. how the game started as um, it, it it started as Codename Dylan, 
which is a fun, pretty lame, <laughs> but kind of fun, I guess, uh, thing that Bioware does. They they their code names for games are named after musicians, and mm. it, usually it's something like, "Well, we know we're doing a Dragon Age game. We've done Dragon Age before, so the framework's the framework's kind of there." This musician that we name a game after is going to, like, inform the vibe we take it in. Uh, which is not a bad idea. Like, you, you uh, they, they said, as an example, the current, um, the, the, the current Dragon Age 4 thing they're working on, which is barely even started, apparently, is, is called Project Morrison right now. And it's like, yeah, take Tony, or uh, take, just not Tony Morrison, Jesus, uh, Jim Morrison, and, and uh, t- take Jim Morrison, like get his vibe, and make a game kind of that would would w- what's he all about? I-, I think that might work. I think that might work for a game that's already like established. But if it's a new IP like Anthem, and you say it's Project Dylan, just like what Dylan was, man, it's gonna be like Dylan. What does that mean? And like the the idea of trying to find out what Bob Dylan. It wasn't just a project name that they picked and then, like, it's not because they just respected Dylan and they moved on. Apparently, like, they really wanted to base a lot of the design off of, like, the way Dylan felt about music we're going to do about a video game. Um, which which is why, it's, I don't know, what Anthem came out to be is not Bob Dylan, but... Um, they they kept guessing and checking themselves like is is it gonna have flying is it is it just gonna be walking they don't even know like is it gonna be match structured is it just gonna be this persistent environment is it what would what would Bob Dylan be like if he was a video game and that's the craziest <laughs> way to to like assume a game will be designed to say like we'll start with Dylan and because we're so smart that will inspire us. For sure, it like it. it I, I'm guilty of this sometimes, where like I, I I take an idea for a project and I I do it because I assume in the back of my head like, oh, this will have enough meat on it to definitely extend to the full project, even if I can't plan out what that means yet. And sometimes it works, but like sometimes I'll I'll say like, oh, I should review this game. This is going to be a, a cool review. Uh, and then as I'm writing it, I'm realizing, like, I didn't have an idea for this, for how this would go. I only, like, assumed it would take me there, and it didn't. Uh, and they really ran into that problem with Project Dylan for years, for, like, five years. And, and, uh, they, that's just where it went. That's where the, the time on that, spent making that game went. And... That's just how it was gonna be. There, there was no working around that, which makes me sad for Bioware. I hope they shape up their act. I, I really it's, do. It's, yeah, it's it's really sad because you know, again, I feel like um, I'm sure there were a million great ideas. There are aspects of Anthem that do shine through that are really clever. I mean, the flying is definitely fantastic. Um, there, there are elements of it that are great. Um, but again, I, I just see a total lack of product management and, and leadership. Um, you know, I think being able to define a vision, being able to 
lead a team of really creative, exceptional people and kind of get them to coalesce around that. You know, you can have great creativity, but you can also have a sense of of rigor and a sense of, you know, keeping keeping the train on the tracks um, and having kind of logical checkpoints where you're temperature checking things. Um, again, like as I'm reading this article, I'm just thinking, man, like how can you, if you're in any kind of leadership role there, how can you see what's happening even early in the piece, even kind of a year in, 18 months in, and not be going to like not be raising the flag and saying, man, this is an emergency. We're burning money and we're not getting anywhere and we don't have a clear plan of how to get there. Like if I remotely let, if I let something far less significant than that pass in my role in, in my job as a product manager, I'd be gone. I, you know, that, that would just be unacceptable. Um, regardless of how creative and talented my team is, yeah, I'd be out the door tomorrow. They'd just say, sorry, you know, you're, you're not like, what the hell is this? Um, so it's, it's very, very sad. Like um, I, I feel really bad for the, for the, the actual teams in Bioware who, who not only didn't have this leadership uh, to support them, but also the fact that they were, you know, like working on like the Dragon Age team, as we've now found, you know, was working on Dragon Age 4 for a while and apparently it was shaping up really well. And then they were, um, then everything was stopped because, oh my God, there's a fire, there's an emergency. We need to get all these people and dump them on another project that's failing. And then by the time they come back, oh, maybe we'll just cut, you know, maybe we'll just dump what you're originally working on and start again. Uh, even the whole idea of taking all these people and just throwing them blindly into another project, to me, that's just insane. Like, that's not how you manage. You can't sustainably manage any software project that way, whether it's a game or, or anything. So no. I'm reading this with horror and I'm feeling terrible for all the staff. Like, it must be it must be so stressful um, to work in that situation. One of the most surprising aspects of this article was, I, I think a lot of people, as soon as they saw what Anthem was compared to what it was promised to be, they, they started immediately just guessing, hey, what's what's the problem here? And the, the highest in popularity hypotheses were, um, like, it was rushed, there was too much crunch, EA didn't give them the right resources, alternatively, EA didn't yes. give them enough time. Or alternatively, EA didn't um, give them enough freedom and they were too controlling and maybe they gave them too much EA oversight. Um, or or just like there was a change in leadership halfway through that compromised the vision. None of those things are what happened. It was just yeah. like EA, for, for all the shit we give them, kind of just did what they were able to do. And this is just a bad leadership thing he was just like leadership is a skill mm -hmm. and someone wasn't either talented or practiced enough to know mm -hmm. how badly they were messing up the situation and it just happens it like this is a good contrast to what happened with red dead redemption 2 in in, in that development cycle not only because that game was kind of liked and this one is kind of not 
Um, but with, with that one, you can see like, man, so many circumstances from on high, but, uh, labored these people's work lives for years. And this is kind of the same thing, but like, it's nothing's morally wrong with this one it's it's not like with red dead redemption 2 where people were like unionize games now with this one people are just like man those guys fucked up <laughs> man they <laughs> yeah. did not do what they were supposed to do at all at, like, yeah. they just didn't think through this this one um although yeah, i'm sure yeah, unionizing absolutely. games would help that's <laughs> not to not to take away any points oh, from that yeah that's right. And I mean, people, you know, people are always, it's always tempting to go for the simple explanation. And, and I think certainly there's plenty to criticize EA for, but I've, for years, I've, I've felt that EA is this, he's the Emmanuel Goldstein of, of the video game industry. Um, you know, EA is this, this kind of boogeyman that, um, is, is easy to reach for in every, situation and quite often what happens is aside from the fact that's often unfair to the people that work at ea frankly it it also often betrays a misunderstanding of of what's actually happening on the ground and you know these things are often quite nuanced and complicated and sometimes it is just that you know as you said like you have you have the wrong leaders in place and people just fuck up and like it's not always this nefarious plot. It's it's just, you know, a series of really, really bad kind of mistakes are made and, and shit happens. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Bad, bad management. In, in, in so many industries around the world, in, in, in food and health and everything, uh, we, we've kind of gotten to a point where they've been around long enough that the idea of keeping something a trade secret is reserved for just like the purest part of the creation of a product and, and most of the things like how do you how do you um lead an office how do you be an executive uh that can be yes. respected and work with people is are are they aren't trade secrets anymore they are just common knowledge that that's shared uh welcomingly and it mm -hmm. that's just not how the games industry is right now a People have been so secretive for so long, um, and we're really only starting to see people talk about their conditions in, in public settings that um, I, this might just be an inevitability to see people um, not know how to lead an office, not know how to lead a project team, because no one's, no one's talking about that kind of stuff. No one's trading... Um, outside of like some very specific GDC talks or something, no one, no one's trading context specific tips on how to get your yes. your game done, which is which is sad. Yeah. Now that's been our show. We have been the Super Jump Podcast. You can write into us at podcast at superjumpmagazine.com. That's podcast at superjumpmagazine.com. Send us a question. Send us a comment. We'll read it on the show, possibly. If if, if it's weird, I won't. Uh, let's head into our closing segment of the show, the After School Activities. So this week, my After School Activity uh, is to check out the GDC talks I was just talking about. Several of them happened recently because uh, GDC happened recently. One in particular I liked 
was by Bennett, Foddy, and Zach Cage, two uh, very prominent individual game, uh, in- independent game developers that don't work in a group a lot of the time, called Put Your Name on Your Game. Uh, and you can find that on the GDC Vault, which is a website. Just Google GDC Vault, and uh, I'm sure you'll find it. They-, they make some great points in that talk specifically about like the way it- it's not just branding, nor is it just creative. It- it- putting your name on your game, whether it be in the title of something, like getting over it with Bennett Foddy, or what Zach Cage does, which is just his company name is his name. Um, or, or, or like other examples, like to- Toby Fox doesn't have a company name, right? Undertale is by Toby Fox. Um, it creates a through line for, for people to say, like, if I liked this game, I'll like other things. And, and uh, it, can, it can be really beneficial for you to not mask who you are as an individual when you're uh, not just making games, but any creative work. Games seem to have a, a bigger problem with that than... than uh, than average, but yeah, check that out. That's that's really cool. That sounds awesome. Uh, actually, you inspired me to change my after-school activity recommendation. I I, I was going to recommend a, a YouTube video, which I might recommend at some point. Um, <laughs> Save <great>. it, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I actually, kind of following on from what you were saying there, I, I really highly recommend... Um, a GDC talk by Sean Murray uh, of, of No Man's Sky fame. Um, and it's just called, the title of it is just called No Man's Sky Grit. Mm. And basically, Sean Murray discusses the what happened when No Man's Sky launched and what happened after that launch. And... Um, you know, obviously, uh, I think everybody knows what happened in terms of a, the public view. Um, you know, without going into it, Sean Murray and his team were, were basically completely crucified across the internet. Yeah. Um, and he, it, it's a really interesting talk because um, he deliberately doesn't go into much detail about the specific feedback in quotes that they received because of course a lot of it was very nasty and some of it uh went to sean murray and, and his his family um in the real world so he i i think he faced a very real sense of danger at times from you know from from a video game which i still find incredible um but what i find really interesting about this talk the most interesting thing is and this is a great example of leadership, by the way. He talks about how he they were getting this metric ton of feedback, um, a lot of it nasty. And basically, he had this way of shielding his team from it completely so they didn't have to see the individual comments. And what he did was he basically collected, he, he found ways of collecting masses of feedback and turning it into data points Hmm. he's like okay without actually reading each nasty comment let's find a way of um taking the emotion out of it and looking at it as a as a mathematical question um as a question of 
data points that we can measure and we can start to figure out what are people really saying, what's really important to learn, how is it going to guide what we do next? And he talks about that process and it's in itself, it's fascinating. I think it's a great thing for any leader, any team to watch. But it is also, as I said, it's an awesome example of incredible leadership under immense, immense pressure and stress. Um, it, it's a fantastic talk. I really recommend watching it. And it's just another reminder as well that video game creators are human beings, you know, and they, whatever mistakes they're perceived to have made, um, they are people and, uh, and, and they go through very, very real emotional roller coasters, just like everybody else. Um, that's what, sorry. Did you say that was a YouTube video? It should be in the, I, I, so I saw it on YouTube, but I think, um, it's also part of the GDC vault as well. It's oh, from okay. the latest, gotcha. um, yeah, the, the most recent GDC. Cool. I, I, I definitely will check that out. You convinced me, um, w news bulletin. This, this never happens on the show, but as we were <laughs> recording, some news just came out, um, which I should have been aware that it was going to come out. I, I just didn't think about it. Um, this is pertinent to the what we just talked about because it affects both EA and uh, payment structures for games like uh, Apple's Arcade. Jedi Fallen Order, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, that respawn game that EA is publishing, um, yep. pretty much the first main like big f single player Star Wars game since EA got the license to do Star Wars many years ago. Um, has just been announced to not have any form of microtransactions. N neat. Great. But also, it won't have any form of multiplayer at all. Uh, which, it, it was never su supposed to, really. It was always supposed to be a first uh, single-player single game. But just to see something completely without multiplayer coming out of EA is curious definitely a surprising thing um we don't have to talk about that i just thought i'd get it on the show while we can unless you have any thoughts on that <laughs> i'm just gonna say two words respawn leadership great yeah <laughs> respawn leadership not bio leadership the the two yes. sides of the ea coin um difference just an announcement we're definitely going to e3 this year I've, I've said this in previous episodes uh in, in the last couple of weeks but just uh uh to to reiterate on that we are going to e3 this year we will be covering the show i will personally be there in person that's what personally means so uh <laughs> if you have any coverage requests uh we got a couple last year and and i i did tailor the games that i checked out and what i spent my my time on at the show on the show floor uh to those coverage requests um if, if there's a game that you specifically want me to see so we can talk about it on the show uh there's no guarantee that i'll be able to see it because you just can't do everything at e3 uh it's it's too hard but if if you are that, that uh that interested in a specific game hit us up just email us at podcast at superjumpmagazine.com and we will try to tailor our uh coverage to your feedback so thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe. 
uh, review us on iTunes if you can. Tell a friend. We grow mostly through word of mouth, so that really does mean a lot to us. Thanks for listening, and stay super! Mm.